0: And before we go to Hebrews 13, I'm going to begin with prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank You for the opportunity to gather together to open up the Scripture, to explore the excellencies of Your ways and the glories of our mutual salvation that You've provided for us and the personal work of Your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank You for, what a, thank you for this sacred privilege of being a part of the family of God to pray for one another and to encourage one another unto love and good works. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this morning we are... I think we're on verse 13. Hebrews 13.13. It says here, hence, well... We don't have the same people here every exact Sunday, so I have to keep going back and giving the context here. There's this extended section that really starts earlier in chapter 13 about going outside the camp where we meet Christ. And to give a simple summary of this, the argument that the author of Hebrews is making is that in the, under the Old Covenant on the Day of Atonement, when they did the blood sacrifice, they brought the blood in to the holiest place, but the carcass of the sacrificial victim was brought outside the camp to be burned on the Day of Atonement. And he makes an analogy to Jesus suffering and dying outside the camp. Now, metaphorically, the point is inside the camp was the old covenant and its practices. So the people that are staying inside the camp, that is those who are looking to uh, the old covenant practices for their hope and for their salvation, are, are, are not participating in Messianic salvation. Because we have an altar... That they can't eat from, according to this passage. That altar is Christ who suffered outside the camp. So that was starting, uh, with verse 9, verse 10. We have an altar. Verse 10 kind of set the stage for what we're studying here. Verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood was brought into the holy place by the high priest who were burned outside the camp. Verse 12. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So that's The point, we were discussing that last week. We discussed sanctification. We discussed the blood of the covenant. The book of Hebrews is a fabulous book. I've been thinking about it as we're drawing to a close. I couldn't have been teaching through a better book just for my own understanding of the Gospel and what the church is all about. And I think that if a lot of Christians really studied the book of Hebrews, it would do the church in general a lot of good because the same issues are facing us today. And one of the things in Hebrews that's so emphasized is the blood atonement. I don't think there's any book in the Bible that talks about the blood atonement more than the book of Hebrews does. And the key point is that the blood was shed once for all. And those who who come to Christ have their consciences cleansed from dead works to serve the living God by the blood of Jesus. Okay, now to verse 13, where we are today. Hence, let us go out to Him outside the camp, bearing His reproach. Now, under Old Covenant ideas, outside the camp was unclean. Alright? And, but here, being clean, being sanctified, being made holy, being made suitable to serve God in holiness is something that happens outside the camp because Christ suffered outside the camp. So this is a reversal from what they would have expected. But remember, he's metaphorically using the idea of the camp to refer to Judaism and her practices. All right. And so, if you stay inside the camp trying to find uh, holiness through all of the prescriptions of the Mosaic Covenant... According to the author of Hebrews, you will not be holy, you will not be sanctified, and you are not willing to embrace the cross, which is to embrace the disgrace and, and uh, of the Christ bore on the cross. Yes.
1: You go outside of the old covenant camp, mm-hmm. going inside the camp of the new high priest who offered the blood in the new, in the real temple. Heaven.
0: So the heavenly day. one, right? You're leaving the earthly old camp. camp behind and approaching God in heaven through the heavenly sacrifice that was that's on the uh, the mercy seat before God that was there once for all. Absolutely. So there's quite a reversal here. Now there are some practical consequences here. So because Jesus suffered outside the camp in order that he might sanctify people through his own blood. Hence, their meaning as a logical and practical consequence to this truth, let us go out. And the idea would be that disciples are willing to embrace the cross. Excuse me, this is found in the teachings of Jesus, for instance, in Matthew 16, that a disciple must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Jesus. And this idea of taking up the cross is often misunderstood. I think most of you have probably understand it because we teach on it a lot here, but we have new people at times, so I want to reiterate certain things that are important. Bearing the cross is often misunderstood to mean having some sort of a burden or a difficulty. Okay? But really, it means much more than that. The cross is not a, necessarily just a burden, but it signifies, number one, the reproach of Christ. Because if someone was seen bearing a cross in the first century when it was used as a means of execution, the, the person who was carrying the cross had already been condemned to death. There's no other reason why you'd be seen carrying a cross other than you'd already been sentenced to die. So, if you saw someone carrying a cross, what, what would you know about them? They're, yeah, their they, their life in this world is over. Proleptic, yeah. Dead man walking. They, say, they they say. In other words, pro, it's a proleptic thing where you'd say your life is over, meaning it's a certain thing it's going to happen soon. Because otherwise, you wouldn't be bearing the cross. And the other thing that would be true about a person bearing a cross is that there, there's, there's reproach, there's shame because you'd be considered a criminal who's been already convicted of some vile, despicable offense against humanity if you were bearing a cross. And therefore, you would suffer the rejection and reproach of the world because they're saying you're dying because of your vile ways. And so when it says to take up your cross as a disciple, it means to consider yourself to be dead to this world and that your hope is not in this world but only in God and you are willing to suffer the consequence of cross-bearing, which is that the world is going to see you as vile and despicable. You're bearing reproach. So that is what uh, attends discipleship.
2: Would would this verse or perhaps this chapter be like a milestone in the dispensation theology, if you will? Would they focus on this person going from one
0: dispensation? Well, the, the, the dispensation would be uh, a real basic one between the Old Covenant and the New. Okay, And so this would be... The, what the book of Hebrews is saying is that we've entered into a New Covenant and here's all the superiority of the New Covenant. It has a better mediator rather than Moses, it's Christ. It has a better atonement rather than the blood of animals. The blood of Christ. The blood of animals had to be sacrificed over and over. The blood of Christ is sacrificed once for all. It has a better sanctuary rather than an earthly one. It has a heavenly one. <laughs> and there are a, a bunch of uh, uh, comparisons between the Old and New Covenant and the book of Hebrews that points out the New is better, and better, and better, and better in every possible way. So that would be... Uh, the the dispensation, so to speak, would be from the Old Covenant to the New. So we are, as a practical consequence, have to be willing to go outside the camp. Now, how did that apply to these first century Jews as far as bearing the cross? It, it, It really was a very consequential thing because they were going to lose... They're going to be considered outcasts. They're not going to be accepted by their family. They're not going to be accepted uh in within uh Judaism as they were before. And this was their whole life. Now last week, remember in the sermon I was talking about separation? One of the things that's true about being in a group that is separated is that it's very difficult to leave. Because if you're in a separatist group now remember I said in the sermon that the old covenant separation was God's idea. Right? because he wanted to protect Israel from being uh, polluted or lose her national and ethnic identity because of the promises that God gave to Israel. So God set up laws that made it impossible for them to integrate if they kept those laws because nobody could get along with them. They're too eccentric. And that's what happens when you have separatism. Remember last week in my sermon I mentioned like the Amish, for example? There would be a separatist group and it's impossible for the people around the Amish to really get, uh, have anything much to do with them other than just passing by because they're so eccentric. They're so other. They're so separated. And, they, and so they stay that way. Now, as I said in my sermon, God brought, purposely took down the wall of separation. It says in Ephesians 2, for a purpose, for a very important reason. Because if separatism had remained the policy, the gospel would have been greatly hindered. And it wouldn't have gone to all the nations of the world. But the interesting thing is that um, when you are raised in a separatist uh, family or religion, it's very, very hard to ever go out and integrate into the outside world. All right? And so when these people who were raised in Judaism in a separatist group go out, what happens when you go out from a separatist group is the group rejects you. Because they can't tolerate somebody who says it's okay to leave. They can't tolerate somebody who says, I'm right with God and I'm not in your group. And they get angry. (laughs) I mean, if you want bitter hatred and persecution... Just try to be in a separatist group and leave it and say, No, I don't need to be in your group to be right with God. Because they can't tolerate that possibility. Bill? Isn't that true historically
1: that uh, uh, our fathers uh, founded America upon uh, values that adhered to the Bible and we became separatists and removed ourselves from Europe onto the United States of America so we have spiritual freedom? And isn't it true that that you couldn't be preaching the Gospel that you're preaching right now if you uh, were in communist China or some other
0: place? Well, that's true. But see, the the idea of the Puritans of separation never got instituted into our Constitution because uh, separation would mean that you couldn't tolerate freedom of religion. Um, The way they did things in England before they came over here, was you had to win the war to have your, whatever freedom you wanted to have your religion. Are we not in war right now? Well, that's true because Islam is a separatist religion. Islam is totally separated and, and they want to be more separated than they are now and the more radical ones want to kill everybody that won't tolerate, won't uh, separate with them. In other words, you have to go and submit to the Islamic leaders to not only function in their religion, but, but to function in their society. But
1: they have to submit to us, to American laws, if they're not
0: doing that. Well, yeah, but when they come here, we haven't created that. We have we have a freedom of religion where you don't have to be a separatist to to preach your religion. So separ- the separatist groups don't tolerate diversity whatsoever. So America is not a separatist nation because we... Uh, thank God, uh, sovereign uh, by His providence, after the Hundred Years' War, after the wars in England, after the Bloody Mary, the, the, all the slaughter, and finally, really after the Reformation, it took several hundred years to figure this out, then it would be better to have freedom of religion than to always have a war to see who's going to be forced to submit to whose religion. Okay? And so, uh, the founding fathers of America... We're done with religious wars as far as they were concerned, and so they instituted freedom of speech, freedom of religion, so that we won't have to have a war to decide which religion is going to rule in America. And which, which we don't. Now, they still do in the Middle East. So,
1: why, why, why is our pre Masonic government suppressing Christianity as we
0: speak? Well, that's because pagans are both. But we're still free here to preach the gospel. I'm preaching the gospel, and you know they, they may take that away. That's, that's, that's God's sovereignty, but we have a freedom here because we are not a separatist nation. Absolutely not. The Puritans were thinking that's what they wanted to do. Keith, you know a lot about this.
1: I think that you could look at it from a macro scale that the pagans want to be separate from God.
0: <laughs> that's a good point. So if
1: the paganism decides. We're not going to have anything to do with God. We're going to separate from Him. then they hinder Christianity. Then they
0: attack Christianity, right.
1: But when you have... I mean, the Puritans, they were separatists. They put in Cromwell. And they killed all the Catholics. And they killed everybody that wouldn't agree with them. And that was what the issue was. We're going to try to establish God's kingdom on earth civilly. We're we're going to take the sword and kill everybody that doesn't do it. Against all fanatics. Equally against Muslim fanatics... Christian fanatics, Jewish fanatics, Hindu fanatics, any fanatic that takes up the sword and says, I'm going to kill you if you don't believe what I do, they're all dangerous. Jesus will come with a sword and he'll sort it out at the end.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, good point. So, uh, I I agree. Now, but let me get back to what I was trying to illustrate. If you grow up in an Amish home and you determined on your own conscience before God that the laws that the Amish put on you are not from God, and you say these laws are not from God, these rules are not from God, I am going to serve God in in liberty in Christ, nuts to you, and and you go buy a car, or whatever it is you do, you will be repudiated. You will be rejected. You will lose your family. They will not have anything to do with you. You are dead. Okay? Now, that's true with anything. If you are a part of a, a radical Islam and you become a Christian, and you say to radical Islam, I don't have to obey your rules in order to be right with God. I'm right with God through Jesus Christ. And I'm going to serve God according to my own conscience before God, and the Bible's the only authority. You radical Islam leaders are not my authority. They will kill you if they can, because they can't tolerate somebody that doesn't believe they speak for God. Now, the same thing happened in the early church. The Jewish leaders who were in rebellion against God because they wouldn't submit to Messiah as the true prophet of God tried to kill the Christians. Why was Paul wanting to kill those Christians? Because these Christians were saying, we can serve God on His terms because He's given us salvation and freedom in Christ and we don't have to submit to you. We don't have to submit to the Sanhedrin because the Sanhedrin doesn't speak for God. And Peter stood up to them and said, We ought to obey God rather than man, and you're not speaking for God. So why did they want to kill him? Because they were overthrowing their whole system. Separatist groups always have leaders who claim they speak for God. And you, if you disobey them, I'll, I was in one. Alright? And they wouldn't kill me, but when I said, I stood up to the top leader in our group and, told, and said he was teaching false doctrine, They scuttled me off and said, oh man, Bob's in rebellion and 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 all of a sudden there's problems. Because separatist groups always have a leader who speaks for God. And He makes the laws and the rules, whatever they may be. And if you say no, you're out. Now, true Christian liberty is found in Christ and under the authority of Scripture. And when we may all prophesy... Anybody here, anybody in this Sunday school class can open up the Scriptures and determine what's true and false and speak from those Scriptures authoritatively and say, God has not bound us or God has bound us. This is binding and loosing. Right? God has bound us to the moral laws that are revealed in Scripture. And they're binding on every one of us. And we all are able to equally find those and read them and understand the implication applications and so together, we're free in Christ under the authority of Scripture. And I have no authority as a pastor or an elder to make any law and put it on you and say it's binding on you if it's not coming from a valid implication from Scripture. Does, does, is, does that make sense? Now, I admit that we're going to have some debates about what's a valid implication, but that's a good thing. That's That's much better. I'd re- I can get along with people I disagree with if we can agree on the authority of Scripture. Because at least we're going back here to find out what it says. But if somebody says the authority of the church, I stand here as the mouthpiece. And this is what Luther fought, and this is what the Reformation is all about. Because Luther, I was reading more Luther this last week. I'm very, very interesting. Uh, I was, I'm doing, I'm doing more research on this idea that you may all prophesy, so I was looking up what Luther said. And he, he holds the same position that I'm teaching on this. And Luther was adamant that every... Not that he got it for me, obviously. <laughs> but, uh, but here's why Luther felt it was important that you may all prophesy. Because that gave a believer in the congregation as much authority as a cardinal or a bishop or a pope or a teaching magisterium. And he said that ultimately, uh, because the congregation is told to judge prophecy, the congregation has the authority to do so. says, you may all prophesy, but judge all things, hold fast to what is good. And he said, "And if if the Pope comes to your church and says this is the way it is, you can judge that. And you can say, no, that's not the way it is because the authority of Scripture and the priesthood of every believer. So that's a very, very rock-solid Reformation principle that we want to hold to. Now... um, but will bear reproach because of Christ and the cross.
1: You, you just pointed something out that I've not really heard, of, I guess. It, it just, just a sort of a word picture to encapsulate really the Reformation and so on. The authority lies in the Scripture. doesn't lie in the church.
0: Right. The authority is in the Scripture, not in the church. The church... Uh, The leadership of the church, the elders of the church, what is important? Well, the most important qualification, there's all kinds of qualifications for elders. Most of them are character qualities. In other words, they're living up to what the Bible expects of all of us. But they must be able to teach. And it says in Titus 1, they need to be able to correct those who are in opposition. Not to their authority, but to the gospel. Right? Because if he, elders can run amok and sometimes elders have to be rebuked.
1: One thing that's important in this kind of context, too, it's not the benevolence of somebody that's in question. You can have a benevolent group that wants to do you good, but it has, and they claim to speak for God, but without the authority of Scripture. And you say, well, they're just nice guys. Nice guys can kill you. Yeah. It's not a question of
0: benevolence. Question. Nice guys can teach you a doctrine that will lead you to hell. Yeah. Like Mother Teresa. Have you seen that series they're doing on Worldview Weekend on that? Christian Worldview Network? I got it. Brandon House, who, who's in charge of that ministry, emailed me He says, is it okay we're running this thing on Mother Teresa? <laughs> because, you know, because it seems like kind of beating up on a bunny, you know. It's <laughs> It's kind of neat. What's that? I said, you, you're kind of that. Yeah. <laughs> I to, I totally agree. And so somebody is just writing a series of articles on world on this Christian worldview network, uh, outlining the teachings of Mother Teresa, and she she claimed Buddhists were fine the way they were. They don't need to convert to Christianity. Quoting her, quoting her real words. Quoting her, yeah, quoting her. It's very interesting. And now here's the, just to illustrate what you're saying. There's the nicest person. I don't think Mother Teresa would hurt anybody other than she might send them to hell. <laughs> so if
1: you, if you gave her authority
0: and ended up in hell, that's not the Yeah, you, yeah so you, you don't discern based on who's nice. The Dalai Lama's nice. Except for he didn't um, give a tip to the cat. Oh, no, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> was it, was it, wasn't it uh, Jesse Ventura that met him and asked him about that? That's funny. Yes? I
2: was persons of different faiths in the If they're born into Christ, as long as they believe in Christ, it doesn't matter if they're an Catholic, Baptist.
0: Yes, yeah, salvation is in Christ, and it it's certainly possible for somebody from any background to come to Christ. And they don't have to join a certain church to be saved. Yeah, but they have to come to Christ. Now, generally, I mean, what we want to do is, having come to Christ, find other people who also came to Christ and fellowship with them. Alright? Now, it's getting more and more difficult to find that because the denominational landscape is in so much flux right now that people are having trouble identifying other Christians because they don't know where to go. But, nevertheless, they're looking for them. Now, let's go back to this outside the camp. So, going outside the camp meant leaving Family, security, identity, people that you grew up with, people that you're bound to socially in a very strong ties, and being willing for those people that used to be the closest people to you to hate you and even kill you. That's what it meant to these first century people, They and, and they uh, they bore a lot of shame. I was going to quote William Lane on this outside the camp. <clears throat> quote, The exhortation to leave the camp and to identify fully with Jesus introduces a distinctive understanding of discipleship. Jesus' action in going outside the camp, verse 12, set a precedent for others to follow. The task of the community is to emulate Jesus, leaving behind the security, congeniality, and respectability of the sacred enclosure, risking the reproach that fell upon Him. Christian identity is a matter of going out now to Him. It entails a costly commitment to follow Him resolutely despite suffering. As enunciated by Jesus, the call to discipleship is a call to martyrdom. The phrases deny Himself, but not Jesus, and take up His cross are parallel. So we we either deny Christ or we deny self. That's the point. So they're parallel. So to deny self, take up the cross, of parallel. In the synoptic tradition, the summons to discipleship is linked both to the concept of shame and with the severance of social ties. The evangelists appear to have understood the requirement of self-denial as synonymous with bearing of shame. Then he lets some passages in the Gospels just as they have linked cross-bearing with confession. So, an aspect of the disgrace Jesus experienced in His death outside the city gate where Jesus connects to the notion of shame with expulsion from the Jewish community, the shame of expulsion from the camp presupposes the presence of God within the holy enclosure. In fact, the ground for expulsion of those who had become impure was that God was within the camp. And I think I talked about that last year or last week that the reason they had all these strong rules about holiness was God was in the camp. all right, And you couldn't be in the presence of God and be impure and unholy. But when the leadership became rebellious against God and rejected their own Messiah, holiness was no, found, no longer found inside the camp. Yeah, Ichabod. When Jesus, left camp. Jesus left the camp, God left the camp. Does that make sense? Okay, so that, that was, I thought, some very astute remarks. Now, uh, Lane sees this whole thing linked to Exodus 33, 7 and 8, which is, let's look at those. Interesting passages, cause I, I, uh, I did a whole seminar based on Exodus 33, 7 and 8 about the tent of meeting. Exodus 33, 7 and 8. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp a good distance from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And it came about that everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting which was outside the camp. And it came about whenever Moses went into the tent and all the people would arise and stand each at the entrance of his tent and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Now, it could be uh, Lane thinks that there's also an analogy to this found in Hebrews in the sense that even in, at, in this juncture of their history, God was meeting the people outside the camp. So as Moses went to the tent of meeting that at that point in history was outside the camp, so now Jesus is the new tent of meeting and we meet Him outside the camp. Is that something? Jesus is the new tent of meeting.
2: Yeah, which that woman that you were kind of debating with on the tenth of meeting?
0: What's her name? Uh, Beth Moore. Beth Moore.
2: Yeah. So that that pretty much puts the kibosh on that label, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It does. We that I got I, I started a firestorm literally on <laughs> worldview uh, uh, weekend when I wrote a essay on there about Beth Moore who said the tenth of meeting is we could have our own tenth of meeting. And get our own revelations from God anytime. And so I just wrote an essay saying, no, Jesus is the tent of meeting, and you can only go to God through Jesus. You can't have, go some other way because it's very clear that Jesus is the new tent of meeting in the New Testament. And I, and I proved it. People were mad. Oh, I got—I I, I never got called so many bad things in for a long time. <laughs> and and, and Brandon, Brandon House emailed me. He says, this is a record. Nobody's <laughs> ever got so many <laughs> negative things. Uh, and they were so mad, but but none of them tried to disprove my doctrine from the Bible. None of them, because they couldn't. They just thought it was really bad to disagree with Beth Moore. Well, who's she? The new pope? <laughs> and so I came back the next, got the transcripts of that whole DVD, and found out the gospel was nowhere. So I wrote another article that says. Um, the Be Still and Know That I Am God DVD, where that whole ten of meeting thing came, the entire thing didn't have the Gospel on it anywhere. So you go to Walmart and you buy a thing about knowing God, and there's no Gospel. So the, they must be claiming that you can know God without the Gospel. Nobody said anything. I never got any more negative. So I guess they gave up their fight. Oh, Wayne.
1: I, I find it very interesting that, uh, found these, that this gentleman found these Scriptures here about Moses going outside the camp. Because up to this point, we were kind of given the impression that we probably should turn our backs on our Jewish roots, which we never do, of course. Can't, that verse kind of speaks towards that, that. We need to turn our backs on Jewish roots. And here we found in, in history, within our Jewish roots, there still is this
0: picture yeah. of I like, I would that. Yeah, so it, it actually shows uh, in prophecy that God always intended that. Right. The, and as I said last week in my sermon, The camp, if you take it metaphorically to mean the enclosure that keeps Israel separate as a nation, was put up by God for a very good reason. So that Messiah would come from the camp. But when he came, he was suffered outside the camp to signify that's where we gotta go to meet him. Now that isn't, I didn't have time to cover everything in my sermon, but let me say, providentially, God still is keeping the Jews as a distinct people. Okay? Um, and for, the, for, for reasons that have to do with the second coming and what God's going to do at the end of history. But to be saved, you can't go proselyte and go inside the back to the camp. You have to go to Christ who's outside the camp. Yes? Well,
1: in Exodus 33, about going outside the camp predated the first covenant too. Because once God... Moses went up to the hill and got all the rules and
0: they made the tabernacle. It changed. The tabernacle began in the middle of the camp. In the middle of the camp. So that right.
1: Predating that. So you're going back to the Jewish roots, so they claim the same, before the tabernacle was established, and that's where you
0: And got then you the, met God outside the camp. You know what's interesting about uh, typology and this sort of uh, argumentation that the book of Hebrews has here? It, 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 to me, it really shows that the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. Who could think of these things? Do you think it's just you go all the way back in that Genesis and Exodus and you find things all tied together all the way through the book of Revelation? There's no way you could even think of that. You think all these different hundreds of authors over thousands of years figured, let's make this a bunch of books and it'll all end up tying together? No, they just did what the Holy Spirit gave them to do, and you find this thing about the camp in Exodus and again in the book of Hebrews. Wow. I, by the way, when I get done preaching through Genesis, I'm going to preach in Exodus. I'm going to begin in Exodus because I think we can find just as much of the gospel in Exodus as we did in Genesis. Let's see what we have here. Uh, expulsion from the camp meant uncleanness under the old covenant. Um, here's um, he's, uh, this is very interesting. Again, William Lane. He's going to talk about the golden calf. Okay about the idolatry at the golden calf. He says this, "...the erection of the golden calf signified the rejection of God. Consequently, God departed from the formerly sacred enclosure and displayed His presence only at the tent pitched outside the camp." Exodus 33, 7-10. through 10. An attractive, attractive proposal is that the play on the phrase outside the camp, in verses 11-13, was designed to call uh, to mind the occasion when God manifests His presence outside the wilderness encampment. The humiliation of Jesus and His death as an outcast, show that God has again been rejected by His people. So, what he's saying is that when they set up the golden calf, they they rejected God, so He met them outside the camp. And when they rejected Jesus, they rejected God, so He met them outside the camp. Interesting, isn't it? His presence can be enjoyed only outside the camp, where Jesus was treated with contempt. Anyone who seeks to draw near to God must go outside the camp and approach Him through Jesus. This is the character of genuine discipleship and the condition for acceptable worship of God. Wow. <laughs> you have to go outside the camp. Meaning, outside of the old covenant enclosure. Yes?
1: would that put us a little bit in our wish uh, to take action to do
0: that? Yeah, in fact... Um, you know, For these people, they already had taken the action and suffered for it and then they were tempted to go back. Because it says, remember the former days when after being enlightened, you, you suffered shame and you joyfully accepted the seizure of your property. That was in Hebrews 10. And they were tempted to go back because it was so tangible. And, it, and I think there would be an analogy like when they came out of Egypt because Paul says in First Corinthians 10, they were baptized in the water and in the sea. He talks about the analogy of coming out. So, when they left Egypt on a dry ground, when they got through, the sea closed behind them, and the, the implication is you can't go back. <laughs> okay? So, the action we take is to bear the cross, embrace the shame of the gospel, and come to Jesus.
1: <laughs> that picture shows
0: that just what you, said. you take action. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to change, you're going to have to repent. So, and then when we, in fact, next week we're baptizing people, and I like to often read that section in 1 Corinthians 10 at a a baptism, or when I teach people about baptism, is because I really believe one of the things uh, baptism signifies is the closing of the sea behind you. In other words, you're saying that when I go in and come out, I can't go back to the old world. The bridges are burned. There's no way back into Egypt. (laughs) And I don't want to go back to Egypt. And in many cultures where Christianity is severely persecuted, it's baptism that sets off the persecution. Okay, bearing his reproach as part of being a Christian. uh, We'll start here. Uh, Matthew 5.11, Dean, Brian, Luke 6.22, Denise, Acts 5.41. And tell me your name again. Verna. Hebrews 11.26. If you could look that up. Hebrews 11.26. Okay. um, Matthew 5 and verse 11.
1: 11. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake.
0: Okay, it says you're blessed when men persecute you, revile you say evil for my sake. Jesus said. You're not blessed if that happens just because you're a jerk. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) right, it has to be for the sake of Christ to be considered persecution. Luke 6.22
2: Blessed are you when people despise you and when they exclude and excommunicate you and revile and denounce you and defame and cast out and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son
0: of Man. Wow. Wow. It talks about being excluded, didn't it? Sent out, You're, we don't want you. Go away, they say. Acts five forty one.
1: So they de- departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name.
0: That was when I mentioned earlier the, the the council rejected them for being Christian and for preaching the gospel, and they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. Because Jesus predicted that would happen. Because that was what that verse said that he read. Here's when it happened. They remembered the words of Jesus, evidently, and said, It's happened. So we because it said there, you're blessed when it happens. So when they rejoiced, because they knew they were blessed. <laughs> All right. And uh, Hebrews 11.26
2: Esteeming uh, the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in, in Egypt.
0: Yes, and that, that is Moses. Okay. For he looked to the reward. For he looked for to the reward. Now that Hebrews eleven twenty six says Moses believed that the reproaches of Christ, the reproach of Christ was greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. now Egypt was the most wealthy, powerful nation in the world, and Moses could have been called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Notice how it says in Hebrews that it was the reproach of Christ that he bore. Before Christ came on the scene of history, but but in type Christ was in the old covenant in, in, in the Mosaic covenant, and so in a sense Moses bore the reproach of Christ. Wow! All right, let's go to verse fourteen then. For now, uh, the one uh, that, that that last verse, Hebrews eleven twenty six says, "For he looked to a reward. He 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 saw a future reward." Moses did. Now, the next verse here says the same thing. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Alright? Now, we don't have a lasting city. Now, it's probably a reference to Jerusalem. Jerusalem now isn't the lasting city for the Christian. The New Jerusalem will be. Yes. But... God intended that Christianity was spread all over the world and not just be headquartered in Jerusalem. Now, it's going to change when Christ comes and rules on the throne of David, literally, from Jerusalem. But for now, uh, Jerusalem is not our lasting city. There's a future. Now, I'm talking here about an eschatological city. I mean, notice it says we're seeking the city which is to come. Now, the word seeking, according to... Uh, the scholars, the word seeking here would probably be linking this to a pilgrimage metaphor. So, to these early Jewish believers, one of the most precious times to them was the, was the thr- thrice, <laughs> that's an old English word, three times annually they went on a pilgrim feast, they went on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem the males, the male Jewish people. So it was a Pentecost, Passover, and a Day of Atonement, I believe, were the pilgrim feasts. And this was a, a time that they really, really looked forward to. It was the most glorious times for the Jews are these three feasts. And the pilgrimage was one where they would come uh, in a uh, caravan singing the psalms. And there's these psalms of ascent, so like Psalm 118. And they would sing as they went on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And so that would be one of the things that they missed that they left behind. So when they became Christian, they're, expo- they're set out of the camp, they're kicked out of the Jewish community, and they're not allowed to participate in the things that made their family what it was. And this kind of thing, by the way, happens to Christians. There are people who, because of the gospel, are not allowed to go to family functions any longer. Okay? Uh, There are people even that leave Roman Catholicism who become persona non grata with their own families. Because that was sort of a separatist group in its own sense and said, if you're going to go out from us, then you just stay out and don't bother. We don't want to see you if you're going to shame our family by becoming a Christian. How dare you? <laughs> yeah, you know what it's like, don't you, Brian? We like you here. <laughs> you can be a part of this family. <laughs> yep. So, um, the pilgrimage... Okay, so they're, they, they love these pilgrimages. We're going to go up to Jerusalem. We're going to go up with the, our family. We're going to go up with the other... Pilgrims, and we're going to sing the Psalms of Ascent and we're going to see the temple and we're going to see the high priest on the Day of Atonement and it's going to be a glorious thing. And now, they're hated by all these people they used to go to Jerusalem with. But it says here to them, but we are on a pilgrimage to a better city. We're on a pilgrimage that's unlike any of these pilgrimages we've ever been on. We're seeking a city to come the glorious heavenly Jerusalem. (laughs) And so, that is a a metaphor that's found here in the book of Hebrews. Also, chapter 12 talks about that. The myriads of angels. (laughs) The the souls of uh, just men made perfect. Remember that? That we've come to to, to this city. So, they are bearing the approach of Christ but going to a better city on a better pilgrimage that is a heavenly one and in so doing, they are following in the footsteps of the greatest Jewish heroes, Hebrews 11, like Moses and Abraham and these people who were looking for a city. So it's really interesting. Yes, Sam?
2: The richness that we have uh, by uh, experiencing the reproach of Christ, is we can see it here and in, in today. Most of the time we may think that it's heavenly after, after we leave this earth and we go to our heaven. Like the, you know, just the path that you gave, uh, uh, Brian. That's part of the richness of being in Christ. That's part of the richness of having suffered and reproach Another part of the richness, knowing that Jesus Christ is alive and and, and, and interceding for us. Amen. He's he's risen. So that richness is something that that I think that I, I like to share with people, besides, after the cross, because there's the other side of the cross, too. You know, we pick up the cross and we walk behind Jesus Christ and we follow His steps. But what's on the other side of the cross? His ascension, his resurrection,
0: fellowship. Fellowship, yep. And that's all very much we've learned in the book of Hebrews. We have access to the throne of grace. We have an anchor inside the veil. We have fellowship with one another. We have uh, all of these glorious new covenant privileges, which are just a foretaste of the glories to come. Um Say, Keith, could you open up Hebrews 11? And we want to show that earlier in Hebrews, there was the same idea of looking for a heavenly city. That the, old, the claim is that the old covenant saints were looking for a heavenly city so that Christians are the ones who are following the faith of Abraham. Christians are the ones who are following in the footsteps of Moses. Christians are the ones who are doing like the great heroes of faith. But the people who reject Christ are I keep standing stepping on this, are um, not able to participate in this particular pilgrimage. They can go to Jerusalem, but they can't go to the heavenly one. Okay, Hebrews, first Hebrews eleven ten.
1: For he was looking for the city, but
0: Abraham. Abraham, okay.
1: For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God.
0: Okay, so there's Abraham looking for a city. That was built by God. And then verse 14, now who's that about? Verse 14.
1: Talking about uh, all these guys in faith.
0: Okay, all of them, all right. But having
1: seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own.
0: All right, so here again is this pilgrim metaphor. That they were, they would consider themselves strangers and exiles on the earth, but they're looking for their own country. And then verse 16.
1: But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. And he prepared, he has prepared a city for
0: them. All right. So the book of Hebrews is such a beautiful piece of literature inspired by the Holy Spirit because these, these themes keep uh, are inter- intertwined all the way through the book. So already back in 11, we see that these people were looking for this heavenly city, um, these patriarchs in the Old Covenant. And now, it, we're included in that. In verse, uh, Hebrews 13, verse 14. We're, we, like Abraham and like Abel and like um, Jacob and like Moses and all these patriarchs who are looking for a city, we're on a pilgrimage to also to a heavenly city. Wow. <laughs>
1: yes. Okay, Kingdom Now theology,
2: that you couldn't even, how would you even come up with something like that with a verse like this?
0: Okay, the question was how would you have Kingdom Now theology in light of this verse? And the answer is you can't.
1: They would say, <laughs> like, for instance, Vatican City is <laughs> the city of the, uh,
0: name, or Tulsa Oklahoma, or... Or Tulsa, Oklahoma is the heavenly <laughs> city <laughs> <laughs> uh, Keith, Keith, Keith you know, we got to ask Keith, he used to be at the Heavenly city you know Keith was at Oral Roberts when they were building the city of faith and he just thought it was hell, okay <laughs> How many of you know it's easier, easier to create hell on earth than it is to create heaven on earth <laughs> all right <laughs> yes. Well,
1: the now people is, uh, they, it has to do with the second coming they believe they're the bodily incarnation of Jesus Christ like Paul believes that he's the bodily incarnation of Jesus Christ and so uh, once they believe that Christ has ascended into their consciousness and that they're Christ on earth then they believe that they can have their kingdom now and so it's a matter of
0: time and space Yeah. we're reading Right. Right. they believe that Jesus Christ has
1: returned
0: and up yeah. the Right. If, as a matter of fact, if you read some of the literature out there, especially the more radical versions like the latter rain movement, they talk about this many-membered man-child. You run across that in your research? The many-membered man-child. They claim that, that they have an elitist type of Christian experience that makes them... They even talk about their group as the incarnation of Christ. Okay, and so Christ comes in the church rather than comes for the church and then the church takes dominion instead of Christ. Take up the sword and whack everybody yeah, the and every time, every time that happens they kill everybody if they ever successfully get in charge. Christ-like. So, um, there's a big long section. We've got about two minutes. Let's, let me, let's cut off a smaller bite here. Um, Colossians uh, three one through three. Could you let's look at that one. Colossians three one through three. I think it has to do with setting our mind on things above, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you die. And your life is now hidden
0: with Christ in God. Yes. Thank you, Laura. I remembered your name after you read it. <laughs> okay, thank you. Set your mind on things above. You know, I got an email this week from a King James-only guy rebuking me. And uh, and he quoted that verse as proof that we can only read the King James. yeah. He must have heard last week's sermon on the internet. So he, did, he, Dick, you saw my reply.
2: I like it. You do points, one through six.
0: Yeah, this guy just says this evictive paragraph, you know, blasting me, be, be quoting different Bible verses. that has all this reasoning. So I, I tried to be civil when I reply. So I said, "Well, six invalid arguments don't make one valid one. So let me list your arguments for you." And then he said. He quoted uh, Hebrews, You have not resisted to shedding blood. I said, Well, okay, so argument is, if I haven't shed blood, then I have to use the King James? I mean, or something like that. What kind of argument is that? Uh, And then another verse was, God said, My word will endure forever. So how does God saying, My word will endure forever, a couple thousand years ago, prove that the only Bible we can read is the King James? And there wasn't a single argument that had anything to do with Bible translations. It was just, so I said, I recited these arguments and said, well, okay, you've got six invalid arguments. That doesn't make anything true. So how's Colossians 3, 1 through 3, setting your mind on things above, have anything to do with I can't read anything but the King James Bible? Because King James is above now. Oh, because King, yeah, he may not be. <laughs> he may not be. King James was a homosexual. He might be below. <laughs> Now I'm gonna see. This will go on the internet, and I'll get another nasty email. (laughs) I just keep digging a hole deeper. Okay, Sam.
2: (laughs) To the King James people, if I want to read the Bible in Spanish, where where am I?
0: Well, we ask them that. I don't know.
2: First, okay. (laughs) Okay. Second, second point is this. Probably just for you. Uh, You should probably end all your emails and letters and and writings with uh, Galatians 4:16. Am I therefore your enemy because
0: I speak the truth? (laughs) <laughs> I should have I your enemy because I speak the truth? Okay, I uh, remind me, uh, some of you will not only be here next week, and I'll be here. Remind me, there's a whole section I want us to turn to together. 2 Corinthians 4.17 through 2 Corinthians 5.8. But as, I want us to all open our Bibles and read those together and discuss it because it's very pertinent to this above idea and the, what life is like now and what it's going to be like for the Christian because we're on a pilgrimage to a heavenly destiny and it's a glorious one at that. Thank you for sharing together in the Word of God.